Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin made, came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be dead to me, death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring forth death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through, that, through what is good, in order that sin might be known, shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, Sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, where I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it no, is no longer what I do, no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a, a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For those of you who are adults, I don't know most of you. I didn't know most of you in your teenage years. A few of you, I know. Um, part of my story is my teenage years, uh, I, I grew up in a Christian community, kind of a Christian bubble. Um, but in, within that Christian bubble, and maybe some of you can identify with it, is in that Christian bubble, there were a lot of laws. There are a lot of things and expectations of what to do and what not to do. For me, growing up in that Christian bubble, one of the rules that was kind of tightly governed was what we could and could not listen to when it came to music. I fell in love with a certain band called ACDC. 
I, I mean, I loved ACDC. Back in Black was an album that should have gone platinum multiple times. Thank you. <laughs> there, there's just that desire, you know. And there's certain songs, even today, when I hear them, there's kind of this inner rocker comes out, and I just, I love it. There, there's certain songs that I, I hear, and I, there's just, I start tapping, I just, kind of this angry side comes out. Well, part of my growing up was, I knew that I was not supposed to be listening to this music. In fact, it was very clear, multiple times, uh, my parents would say, we don't listen, that's not who we are. We don't listen to this music. It's garbage. It's the devil's music. Quote, the devil's music. And, and so what did that do inside of me? <laughs> I kept on going after it. And here's one of the things. This was back in the day of cassettes. Anybody remember cassettes? You take the, you take the little, when you get to the end, you take the, the big pin in there and you kind of uh, turn it and rewind it and kind of, because not always the, the rewind and the cassette player worked and so you kind of had to spin it around and get it all, anyway, I would buy ACDC, Back in Black. I have probably purchased that album probably 10 to 15 times. The reason why I buy it 10 to 15 times wasn't because I wore it out. The reason is because my mom always found it. And what did she do? And she would pull the tape out, and my heart would break, and I'd grow angry, only to be more resolved to do what? Buy it again. There was a law that was kind of working inside me that ultimately kind of showed the condition of my heart. But that law proposed something. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to this? The exact same thing is taking place here in this text. The thing that I love about the book of Romans is that this book has powerful connections between uh, deep, deep theology and real, real life. It, uh, the Apostle Paul, his letters have this flavor about them at some level, but it, and you see it in the book of Galatians, and you see it in the book of Ephesians, but there's nothing quite like the book of Romans. The depth that it goes, and how the depth shows you the condition of your heart. Our heart. And so what does this book do? It, like few other books in the Bible, it tackles big, sweeping, philosophical questions. And it connects them deeply to where we are today. So what we have here this morning as we look at this scripture, we are going to be wrestling with what does the law, sin, and our humanity have to do with one another? The law. God's holy word. And if you look, uh, if you were part of our, our church back in the day when we walked through the whole book of Exodus, you remember there was a point in Exodus where Moses went up onto the mountain and he received from God ten commandments. God's holy word. And he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no 
other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of it in heaven above, on the earth beneath, anything like it. You shall not make another graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, his wife, or maidservant, or anything. Don't don't covet. All those God gave, but yet what does our heart do? There is this desire, somehow, when we are told no, we say, hmm. There might be another way around this. And so we're going to be looking at this relationship between God's law, sin, and our humanity. A couple weeks ago, we, we looked at Romans 7, the beginning, and we examined how Paul tries to answer another question. What does it mean to no longer live to be under the law? And verses 1 through 6 of Romans, Romans 7 It kind of answers that question. It helps us understand the believer's relationship with the law has changed. And there is a new way of living. And which Paul describes the new life of the Spirit. The new life of the Spirit. And it's been inaugurated. It is here. It is for us. And so now, so we've we've talked a lot about the Spirit a couple weeks ago. And we're going to pick up that theme again as we jump into Romans chapter 8. But today, as we look at 7 through 25, Paul's main focus here is to help us understand the role of the law in this discussion about righteousness. To be, have a right standing, a right placement before God. And verses 1 and 6 talk so much about being dead to the law and being released from the law. It sounds almost as if the law itself is bad, right? You go on any Facebook post, and people are kind of even policing, you know, thoughts or laws or how legislatures or uh, anything. It's like, no, oh, that, that law is bad, or your post is bad. We have the, kind of this legislating idea about us, about what is good, what is right, what should or should not happen. And here, in this section, Paul is going to ask two questions. One, is the law sin? And two, did the law bring death? Now, to answer a simple one answer, get you out of the door kind of response is no. The law is not sin, and the law does not bring death. But Paul, being who Paul is, he's kind of verbose. He, he loves to be wordy. He, he has to explain it ten different ways to you to make you understand. So he asks these questions about the law so he can help us understand the relationship between sin, the law, and humanity. He asks the questions in order to help us to get at the source of the very problem. How many of you in college ever took an introductory counseling class? Okay, then I'm going to try my best. And Amanda, you'll probably correct me afterwards about all this, but uh, I'm going to do my best as a pastor wearing that hat right now. 
If you were to take an introductory kind of counseling class, and I remember this when I was back at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, there was this uh, Dr. Uh, Parent Stark, Stark Parent, the doctor, uh, she helped us to understand that there is a difference between a presenting problem and a heart problem. A presenting problem. And in, in Romans 7, uh, we see that the presenting problem, the thing that shows itself up, that kind of gurgles to the top, is the law and our disobedience to the law. But the heart problem or the source problem is ultimately sin. It's, the law is not the problem. It might be the thing that kind of helps it gurgle to the top and see, oh, here's, here's the issue. When in reality, if you boil it down, there's, there's a bigger problem. The presenting problem is the law and our disobedience to it, but the heart problem or a source problem is sin. Or to say it very simply, sin through the law and sin in me is the problem. Sin through the law and sin in me is the problem. And we're going to see the, the law and our disobedience to its commandments are the presenting problem. And, and when you dig deeper though, you will find that the real source, the real heart problem is sin that still abides in us. Does anybody have problems with sin in your life? Okay, that's more of a response than I'm looking for, but it should be more resounding. Does anybody have problems with sin still in their lives? Absolutely, right. You do. I do. We all have these heart, deep heart problems that are connected to sin. So if you hear or read this text correctly, you'll come away with a deeper concern and a stronger burden with the problem of sin in your life. You see, what, what sin does is sin, ever so cleverly, makes an ally with the law. Sin makes an ally with the law. In verses 7 through 12, Paul identifies that while the sinner or the believer has died to the law, and while the, and while the law arouses spiritual passion, the law itself is not sin. In other words, the law is not bad, the law is not evil, the law is not sinful, and the law is not the ultimate problem. And we are going to see that the law is a context for sin, to do its evil work. Law makes, the sin makes the law an ally in its rebellion. And Paul shows us in a few ways through verse 12. First we are going to see in verse 7 though. That the law defines instead of creates sin. The law defines. You, you see it in, in, in uh, uh, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, right? He does, okay, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, do not covet, don't do this. So it's doing, giving us a definition of what is good, what is righteous, and what is not. So Paul says very clearly, if it had not been for the law, he would not really have known what sin is. 
This statement is the affirmation of what is true in light of the fact that he emphatically denied that the law was sinful. The the law's role was not the creation of, of sin, but the revealing of sin. You read this, and if you are honest with these Ten Commandments, you're going, busted? Oh, I'm busted on that one. I'm broken here. Man, just yesterday. You read these things and something should happen to your heart and go, yeah, it is defining me. It is defining my condition. It is defining my brokenness. It is calling out and saying, Paul, you need a savior. You need help because you are dying internally. So Paul, what does he do to kind of illustrate this point? He uses the 10th commandment. For me, it's kind of fascinating and strategic for Paul to use the 10th commandment because that particular commandment is kind of all-encompassing. Why? Because all the commandments have covetousness kind of at their core. And it's also internally focused. The 10th commandment is the most heart-based I would say, of all the commandments, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. And Paul says that he would not have known covetousness apart from the law. So I don't think Paul meant that without the law, he would not have known that covenanting was good or not good at some level. We all kind of have those things where it's, you know, should I struggle? Is this good or bad? Even an unbelieving friend, neighbor, family member, they're, they're st- you can see that they struggle whether or not desiring something is good or bad. You can see that in them. But what Paul is saying is that the law made sin bigger and more clear and more expansive. It becomes technicolor. The law serves as a catalyst and a context for sin. But this is, should not be a new thought for us, right? Because what we've already said in the introduction, but I want you to see where this main idea is coming from. In verse, verse 8 serves as an alter, alternative answer for Paul's question in verse 7. The process is clearly identified. Sin seizes an opportunity. It's like an an alive creature, right? Sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment to produce all kinds of specific sin. All kinds. And the problem is not the command. It is that the way that sin makes the command an ally. It works. It's working in sin's favor. Favor. And so, take the first commandment, or the first temptation that ever took place. It took place in the Garden of Eden. Good? You got your geography down. So, the first temptation is a great prime example. When the devil approaches Eve, he uses the command of God as a setting, as a context for his temptation. Remember, in 3 verse 1, The serpent said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? 
And central to Eve's temptation was not only the alluring appearance of the fruit, but it was also the basic reality of the divine restriction. You shall not eat of this. Rebellion requires restriction. And the real problem was not the law. The real problem was sin. But we also see in verses 8 and 9 how Paul talks about how the law serves as a catalyst for sin and he reflects on his days prior to his conversion. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. Don't we all think that? Man, those days before the law, I was alive. I was drinking. I was smoking. I was carousing. I was doing pot. I had no kind of walls. I was alive. And some of you are going, yeah, I remember those days. I was alive apart from this law. And Paul says that sin lies dead apart from the law. In other words, it doesn't really say, hey, you know what you're doing? You know what you're doing? You're just being destructive. Sin lies dead apart from the law. However, he does not mean that sin is non-existent, right? It's always there. Since Romans uh, 5.13 told us that sin was present in the world even before the law. Rather, it means that sin is waiting for an opportunity to pounce. It's, sin is playing dead like a possum. It is playing dead and it springs into life through this commandment. It is just waiting for the opportunity. Anyone who, ref if, you're, if you're honest and you're, you can reflect on, on your own experience in life in raising children, counseling a friend, you will know how true it is that sin is just lurking, right? It's just lurking. It's waiting for an opportunity. And, and it's waiting so that it can spring into life in stunning and surprising and technicolor kind of ways. You might be having a conversation, you're counseling with them, and you, you're talking about these things, and all of a sudden you go, are you serious? You dove in? You did what? And it presents itself in all kinds of crazy ways. Even in the context of the very first murder, God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Crouching. Its desire is for you. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What does that tell you about humanity? With Christ, we have the power to rule over sin. But sin is constantly, constantly looking for opportunities to pounce. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? you you've been struggling even this week, going, man, it is, it is just waiting to... I felt it. I had to fight it off. It was ready to pounce on me and suck the living life out of me. I got it. But here it says, it's, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. The problem is not your circumstances, friends. It's not. It's not, the problem is not the rules. And the problem is not even the people involved. We got to get over the blame game, right? Because we do that a lot. 
Uh, it's my husband, it's my wife, it's my kids, it's my circumstances, it's the rules that, that they put into place. That's the real problem. The real problem is not them. The problem is sin that is living within. There's where the problem. Because ultimately, we know that another way that the law serves as an out, uses the law, sin uses the, the law as an ally, is that there is this connection between sin, death, and the law. Sin uses the law to bring about death. Sin uses the law to its advantage. Verse 10 just shows us this bait and switch kind of uh, strategy. The law promised life through its alignment with the character of God. There is life when our life is aligned with the very character of God. But sin uses the law as the context for human rebellion. And it ends up being an instrument of death, of shame, of guilt, right? Like a life-improving medicine that, that could be helpful on one level, but deadly if taken outside of the law of recommendation. Sin uses the law for its deadly mission. According to verse 11, sin seizes the opportunity. Sin deceives us, and sin kills us. And it happened in context of the law. The law did not bring death by itself. Sin brought death through the law. Sin through the law, and sin in me is the problem. And, and so Paul gets to verse 11, and he starts off with this word, so, so. And it marks kind of the conclusion of all of his arguments. And his conclusion is general, but yet it's specific. The law is totally holy. The, and the commandment, referring to the 10th commandment, is holy, it is righteous, and it is, it is good. And the law of God intends for the absolute best of humanity. It expresses righteousness. It expresses goodness. It expresses the holiness of God. In and of itself, the law is not bad. Sin is the problem. And it, is, it used the law as an unwilling accomplice to promote rebellion and to bring about sin in our life. And while believers are no longer under the law or the written code, this does not mean that the law is inherently bad. The law reveals the real problem. My real problem. Sin. So we'll unpack this later, but the, the idea of getting to the source of the problem versus blaming something else is a very important issue to consider. In our own lives, in, in the lives of other people, or in the raising of our children, it is very easy to focus on the allies of sin and not the sin itself. Focus on sin. Die to sin. An annoying law or an inconsistent rule or an unfair boss, an ineffective teacher or an influential friend can be the context and can easily be blamed. But there are many allies, right? But the real problem is sin. 
So what does sin do? Sin creates disobedience to the law. It desires to pull you away. It's like that, that crouching animal that once it gets you, it drags you into the underbrush to consume you. Right? Is that not true? Men, for those of you, and I'm going to be honest, women as well, because research shows that it's true for you as well. Pornography. When, it, when the sin of pornography lurches at you, what does it do? It doesn't leave you out in the open, does it? Oh, it drags you under a bush, and it consumes you and eats you alive. And you want to stay there because you are ashamed. You have guilt. You are convicted. And you don't know what to do anymore. And sin goes, I won. I got him. I used the law as my ally to kill another. And that, that's what sin does. Sin, sin, the, the sinfulness of sin is revealed through the disobedience to the law. We, we see that sin produces more disobedience and more disobedience and more disobedience in our flesh. And where does it begin? It's so hard to tell. It's kind of like that Abbott and Costello kind of line. Who's on first? We, we, we don't really know sometimes where it begins and where it all ends. And Paul talks about this internal conflict that we have and a feeling of powerlessness that he sees. And Paul stands. I get it. But underneath the disobedience to the law and underneath the physical actions of carrying out the sin is ultimately the problem of indwelling sin in our lives. Disobedience is a reality in the Apostle Paul's life. Disobedience is a reality in my life. Disobedience is, the rea is a reality in your life. Not because of an external law, Disobedience is not just a, a reality outside of that, but it's all because of an internal battle that you and I have with sin. There's an internal battle that we are constantly going through, and it's saying that you see the same truth that Paul taught in Galatians chapter 5. This is what he said, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do there is a constant battle going on in our lives a constant struggle for righteousness right if you are in Christ there is a constant desire I want to be holy I want to be true I want to be more like Jesus and sin goes there's no way it's impossible you are breaking the law a gajillion times, man. Give it up. You're hopeless. You're hopeless. So what do we do with this? How, how do we respond to this? There's one thing to know. It's one thing to know the truth, right? To kind of have, and that's sometimes the problem even with the type of preaching that you might be receiving here is that I got a lot of information today. 
I know more about the book of Romans. I got some great, some theological words that nobody else in my Christian circle knows. I'm pretty sharp. There's one thing about the, about the truth, knowing the truth. Yet it's a whole different thing, friends, to apply it. Like I said at the beginning of my sermon, this text is one that connects our lives to the real world. It, it's not just this philosophical, theological, kind of biblical idea that's floating around in there. No, it is for us. This is for you. So what do we learn from this text? Number one, and I know this should be, this is elementary, but we've got to remember it constantly. Sin is our enemy. Say it. I love how you spoke it just like I did. Sin is our enemy. I, I, I hope that as we are walking through this, there's something emotionally that is going on inside of you. Not just intellectually. I hope something emotionally is happening to you. I hope that you lead today hating sin at a whole new level. I hope you hate it. And you look at the sin, you're doing this list in your life, and you go, I hate it. I Gosh, I hate that even more. It's causing me to, to suck at this. It's causing me to be disconnected relationally. It's causing me to hate this. It's causing me to, I, I hate sin. I hope that you are seeing sin for what it really is. I, I hope that you see how it stalks you. How sin stalks you, how it deceives you, how it pounces on you, how it uses you. I hope you see how it breaks you. I hope you see how sin kills you. And many of us, if not all of us, are products of a broken world where sin has broken marriages, where sin has broken relationships, where sin creates a divide. Yes? We're all a part of it. Sin kills us. I hope you realize the way that it uses good and holy and beautiful things and makes them bad. I hope you realize and feel the repulsion in your gut to the attractiveness to sin because of the pain and misery that sin causes. Friends, we've got to remember that sin is your enemy. And even if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, and, you even, and even if you don't believe that the Bible is true, surely you can look around in our world, even in your own heart, and know that something is terribly wrong, terribly broken. The brokenness around us and in us is what the Bible calls sin. And it aims to destroy everything, including your eternal destiny. And Romans 7 reminds us that sin is your foe. And we should hate it with every fiber of our being. We hate sin. We also need to ask, now what? The second thing is, we have to look below the surface. Right? It's it was a refreshing reminder that there are issues underneath the issues in our world and in our lives. 
Going through counseling, if you've ever gone through counseling, you often show up in the counselor's office because they're, man, we got to fix this, whatever this is. And you get very frustrated because the counselor doesn't address this. The counselor starts going, there's something underneath. Okay, we'll get to, we'll get to that. But if I just give you a band-aid, that's not going to fix it. We've got to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. To get below the surface. And it's good, it's been good to see Paul, how he goes underneath the law and inside of our flesh to show us what is really going on. Because we are very quick to lay blame in the wrong places. It was him. It was her. It was my context. It was my circumstances. And Paul is saying, "Lo, if, if you're really honest, I know that you would rather blame the system. I know you'd rather blame the government, your bio, our biology, our employer, our spouse, our kids, or circumstances. I know, I hear it, I get it, I'm in the same boat. But those things are not the problem. That's not the problem. They are just the means of exposing what is really going on inside of us. Look deep, be honest. Quit looking at the surface. That's your presenting problem. Get to the heart problem. If you really hate sin, then you will be grateful, not spiteful or depressed when sin is revealed in your life or in the lives of someone near you. Known, hear this, and maybe some of you need to write this down. Known sin is not nearly as scary as, as uh, sin below the surface. Known sin is not nearly as scary as sin below the surface. Oh, I know that. I know I struggle with that. Yeah, but do you know what's going on here? Oh, I've got some anger issues. Yeah, but do you know what's at the core of that? Yeah, I know there was this going on. Let's get below. The known sin is not nearly as scary what's here. We're a ticking time bomb, aren't we? Just waiting to explode. And Romans 7 helps us with that. Another thing to remember here is that uh, the Christian life really is a struggle. Right? I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Maybe most of you are floating around with your little harps on cloud nine all the time. I'm calling your bluff. The Christian life really is a struggle. And one of the most hopeful things about this text and others in the New Testament is the vision of what the Christian life is really all about. And the vision is not just of a person who is perfect and coasting towards the finish line of eternity. It's just, it's just blissful. It's just happy. It's, everything's going quite right. The vision is more like a person who's walking up an escalator while everyone is riding down. You, you've been in the mall, right? You got that one kid who's trying to walk up the escalator and it's coming down and they're trying to go up and it is ridiculous and you're just scared they're going to fall because the corners of those escalators are going to leave a really nasty mark on their head and they're going to blo block up everybody else and, and there's just more work. They're not really making any progress in life and it looks like everybody else is just... And you're going, that's me. I am the kid walking up an escalator. 
The Christian life is a fight, friends. It is a fight against the current of culture and the gravitational pull of your flesh. Constantly. Can we be honest about that? It is a constant battle. You step outside these four walls. You go back to work. You go back home. You go back wherever it is. There is going to be a battle outside because what culture is telling you. And then on top of that, what makes it even more difficult is this gravitational pull of your flesh. Oh my gosh. The enemy outside and the enemy inside. It's a never-ending battle. And it comes to it's coming to terms with your own powerlessness while looking to Jesus for your deliverance. That's what this is. I am powerless. Jesus, you're right. I make a terrible Savior. I, I am a terrible, terrible Savior. I am powerless to do anything apart from you. So the Christian life, friends, will be filled with setbacks. It will be filled with failures. And if you're looking for a great place to figure that out, welcome to church. Following Jesus will never happen without high points and low points. Hear that. And, if it, it, and it feels very refreshing for Paul to even acknowledge the tension and the frustration and the challenge. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Why? Why do I do them? I hate that. And you're going, me too. I'm there with you. And wouldn't it be beautiful if we are the kind of community that says, that's honest about our struggles, whatever it might be, and instead of the first thing out of our mouth being, well, you know what you got to do. You need a little bit more Bible study. Have you been praying? What's your spiritual disciplines look like? Are you in a part of a missional community? I haven't seen you at church for about three weeks. Maybe one of the first things that comes out of our mouth is, yeah, me too. I struggle with it too, man. Now let's kill it. Let's kill it. We're powerless to do this on our own. There's something about three strands wound together. It's beautiful. I need you. You need me. We need Jesus. Let's rely on him. Do you know why this, what this text does for us? It puts words into the battle that every follower of Jesus Christ feels. It explains what is happening in our struggle. It, it calls us to not throw in the towel and just say, Uncle, I give in. I give in with this indwelling sin. This, this residue is more than a residue. It has calcified my heart and I just give up. It sets us up. It sets, this text sets us up for what is to come in Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. It starts in verse 24 of chapter 7. What a wretched man I am. What a great admission, isn't it? What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is therefore, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the sin through the law and in me is the problem. But it's not the end. It's not the end. So we must keep fighting with no excuses. Keep fighting with no excuses. We must keep looking to Jesus and never, ever, ever give up. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, as we uh, marinate in this truth, and as we come to the Lord's Supper, where you feed us spiritually with bread of life, we are reminded, though, that there may be indwelling sin in our lives. There may be presenting problems, but the reality is that we still have heart issues, all of us. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts for coming to the Lord's Supper, the meal where you have prepared a table for us. And you invite us to come and eat and dine and be spiritually fed. Lord, we are reminded of our covetousness. We're reminded of how far we have fallen and how broken we still are. So Lord, I pray that in these next few moments, Lord, that you will reveal the condition of our heart. That we will be honest and open about our need for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.